You're listening to the Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Susie Warren-Smith and for the next hour or so we're going to be talking all things food and drink. I'm joined by my fellow presenter, Ollie Lloyd, who a long time ago was founder of Great British Chefs and we haven't, we haven't actually presented this programme for a little while together because you've been well, being was, a hippie. There was something called Covid as well, that sort of... Well, yes, well, some of us carried on. Yes, I know, I know. Some carried on. Others just threw in the towel. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so, so obviously you went on a hippie visit Yeah, I spent with some your time children. in Argentina you... and Mexico, just hanging out with the kids and my wife. You took the children out of school? Yeah, took the allowed? kids out of school. Well, you, there, there, there are rules and there are rules to be bent. Um, and yeah, we just we tried to learn some Spanish, tried to do some surfing and saw a whole load of things that are very, very amazing. Well, it's very good to see you and your Larry shirt, as usual. Um, we've got an amazing guest today uh, called Marcus Waring, who our listeners may well know. In case you don't know who he is, which is unlikely, he's a Michelin-starred chef and restaurateur. TV personality, who can forget his appearance on MasterChef The Professionals, and an acclaimed cookbook author. And we've got so much to talk about. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Do you know Ollie a little bit? From Once from a, met. From, from a long, 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 long <laughs> Never time forgotten. Ago. Yeah. yeah. Still looks the same. A bit greyer. So I was going to ask a little bit about your background and how you're brought up. Marcus, and then we're going to uh, talk about your very exciting next series that's going to be on BBC Two. So, as as Ollie said, uh, the Barclay, mm. which we have quite a lot of American listeners actually, which is in Knightsbridge in London. Right. Um, but before you, you you sort of got to that, you were born in Southport. Yes. In lovely Lancashire. That's right. That's that's not very Londonish, is it? <laughs> Southport. <laughs> it couldn't be anything further away, I think. And that was that was in like nineteen seventy, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah, I was born in nineteen seventy, yeah. Yeah, which was, you know, an awful time for British food, really. As a kid, met myself then, it was like awful. It, yeah, I mean it, it was and it wasn't. I mean I'm a f I'm from a family of food. My father, fruit potato merchant, mum, you know, proud housewife, cooked all the time. So food at home was was fabulous from our point of view because it was always fresh produce, <clears throat> and there was fishmongering in the in the village, and there was a, you know there was the butcher and so on as a cake shop, you know there was everything you sort of needed. Amazing, yeah, yeah, and and you know the school meals was the you know a very key and very important meal of the day, and that was still <clears throat> traditional type of school meal that 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 carried many children through you know through the day. Um, that's when you know you'd look into a school kitchen and you'd see twelve dinner ladies cooking properly cooking. And they always had their sleeves rolled up. <clears throat> oh, yes. And quite big, chunky muscles, I seem to remember, they were, from my childhood. They were strong, brave women. Yeah, and my auntie was a dinner lady. And um, if she was, she sort of started, this is in inner city London, <clears throat> as a dinner lady. And she said they'd all been there for about 40 years. And mm. she was new and they used to make her go in and clean out the mashed potato machine and all that, yeah. <laughs> all that sort of stuff. But it was, it was, you know, you'd have proper gravy and... Gypsy tart, I seem to remember, yeah, actually, and stuff like that. Yeah, proper cooked food. It was, mm. There was always a potato dish, there was always vegetables, there was always protein, there was, you know, rice dishes. You never really saw much pasta. No. Um, good desserts, there was always a lot of baking going on. Yeah. Manchester tart was a favourite of mine. Yep. I love that one. <laughs> Pastry, one. jam, custard set, nutmeg on top. 
What else do you I need? Can, I can picture like yesterday. <laughs> I can taste it like yeah, it was yesterday. Yeah. So your dad was um, <clears throat> was a fruit and, and potato merchant, mm. um, and obviously I'm going to talk about potatoes quite a lot during this hour because <laughs> they crop up quite a bit. Um, did you see that? Joke I like. Did you see what I did like there? That. That um, uh, and you used to help him at quite a long age, didn't you? Pack potatoes mm. and do some of the deliveries. Do you think that shaped your sort of work ethic and oh. also involvement in food? Without doubt. You know, you know, everyone leaves school at a certain age, whether it's 16 or 18 and we go to university. Uh, I left school when I was at school from the age of 11 onwards. I, I was allowed to, once I joined high school, to be able to leave school at 3.30. That's, the day, that's when the day finished. I was home by about quarter to four and by about 4, 4, 10, 4, 15. Um, I was in the warehouse. I used to get my bike, cycle down and I'd be working there for a good four, three, four, five hours, um, have my tea, go to bed repeat and then on friday i would go do exactly the same thing but i never went home in the evening and my nana's house my my my, my father's uh, mum had a little house just on the side of the warehouse and i just used to go and hang out with her and i used to skip on the couch um about 11 12 o'clock at night because my dad was working till that time at night and um i then would wake up the next day and start all over, start again, all over again six or seven o'clock and i'd have all saturday you know, work in the warehouse so that we were then delivering into the into the into the shops, corner shops before supermarkets, uh, restaurants, hotels, um, and that was a fabulous Saturday day for me. And in the afternoon, I'd go home, get changed, and I'd go and work with my brother, who was a head chef in a hotel, um, and I'd go and do buffets for weddings and get involved there. So I very much was a busy lad. And on a Sunday, I'd go back to the hotel and and do the Sunday carvery. And so, so from hard work. When I left home at seventeen or just eighteen. I'd got a good uh, six six plus years of, of proper work under my belt, which stood me in good stead for when I joined the mm. Savoy and would you know I went from a um, a sleepy town, um, a warehouse and a, a local kitchen in a hotel to working with a hundred plus chefs in a five star hotel on you know in central London, which was you know couldn't be more. Different. different, yeah, to North Pole, <laughs> South Pole. So, we, so before we get to that, sort of your, your your journey down to London. So, where did you get your love of cooking from? Because because you know, um, doing deliveries and and looking at potatoes and stuff like that is quite a far cry from actually then cooking. Because mm. you probably didn't have any time to do that. So, was it was your mum a cook or your your, yeah. your nana or, or my nana? Because it's quite unusual for uh, you know a lad in Lancashire mm. as a teenager to to hook onto cooking. It was very simple. Um, there wasn't a great deal out there um, that I noticed. The school careers officer didn't really give much away. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, think, I, I think I was told you can either be a teacher or a nurse. That's right. It's like a it's secret. Fancy any of those. It was like a secret room, and that no one entered. No yeah. one came out either. No. Um, <laughs> it, it was. It was easy. Um, you know, dad was a fruit potato merchant. Brother was a chef. Um, school was boring, um, and work was my life. Um, and my whole life was set on going to work with my father and to take over for my, for my father's business and, and do what he did with his father. Um, and I'd say around the age of 14, for some strange reason, and I don't know why, or I do now, but at the time I didn't know why, he, we, 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 I remember it as clear as day because we were on the back of a wagon moving some potatoes around. So we used to buy tons and tons of spuds. And he said to me, he said, listen, he said, don't take this the wrong way. He said, but you're not coming into the family business. And I was like, what, where did that come what? from? So, like, what, what do you mean? He said, well, it's knackered, it's done, it's finished. And I said, well, it's not because you're busy, blah, blah, blah. He said, listen, I don't need to explain. He said, you're not coming into the family business. He said, I think you need to think about a different career path. Well, there was only one other career path that was staring me in the face. And, you know, and that was cookery because that's what I was doing. So yeah. the, there's only two jobs to do. 
do one or the other. And if I hadn't done the cooking, I don't, I don't know what I would have mm. done. Um, and for some strange reason, I don't know why they did it, but my brother and my father sent me to catering college straight after school and not on a part-time course that I thought I would have gone on like my brother did. So one day at college, mm. yep. four or five days at work. They sent me to a full-time catering college, um, which was quite bizarre. And I, I, I've, I've never asked them why they decided, that they decided on my behalf. And that was the making of what came next. Where And that was in Southport? In Southport yep. Catering College, where... I fell in love with education, which I didn't have prior to that. And school uh, was a process. I went through it. I did my uh, CSEs. I don't know what I got. Um, I've no clue. <laughs> uh, my dad and my mum never asked me. Yeah. Um, and so, but then I went to catering college. And when I went into the kitchens, I'd already got experience with my brother. So I stood out a little bit there. When I went into the classrooms, there's a, a teacher uh, called uh, Mike Condal who made education, made the classroom really interesting mm. and really great fun. He, he he lit this fire inside of me of burning, wanting to just find more knowledge in cookery books. And so I put the two together and I became a student that was different in some sense because I think I was very good at cookery because I'd had tons of training prior to everyone around me and I gave more effort into the classroom so I used to go home and study all my books and you ended up being a SWAT after all that I did yeah yeah I did and I I came top in every single exam I ever did because I made sure that I wasn't going to let the classroom be the weak part of my this new world that I had fall of uh, that I was working in do you think your parents really saw that you were good at cooking or, or no. just an interest or just wanted to get rid of you? Probably. No, I don't know what it was. <laughs> I don't know. I've never asked them. I don't know whether they did. Um, I don't know whether my brother saw a chef in me. Hmm. Um, what they did see was someone who did his own thing. I never hung out with people. I was hmm. never had a group of friends um, because I was always at the warehouse and I was always working. So the people I associated myself were all people that were peers, people I looked up to, adults. And so I was quite mature for my age and very single-minded and very focused on a job. And so the key was, what am I going to do after the, the, yeah. the college? And I never even asked that question and myself. I just was taking one thing at a time. And I, 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 I was very fortunate to be noticed by a judge in a competition that I was at Cajun College called Jack Neighbour. And he was a lecturer in, at South Trafford College uh, near Manchester. And he knew Anton Edelman and he judged this competition. And after it, he pulled me to one side and said, I really like what you do and I love the way you work. You've got a very precise work ethic, which is quite unusual. He said, I know Anton Edelman at the Savoy Hotel. Would you ever be interested in working in London? At that particular point, I bit his hand off. And nearly... Had you been to London before? Quite... I couldn't. I didn't know where London was. No, because I, I mean, I, I lived in Manchester for twenty years, and and mm. loads of people have never been to London, which I, is I, fine. I'm not fine with that, but it's it's for no. me because I'm from London. I find that extraordinary because it's our no, no. capital I, I, city. So, what was your vision? Of oh, I mean, obviously wanting to your wanting, vision wants, of London was, would well, have been quite interesting at that age. I, I didn't one, have one. You didn't have one. I had right? no opinion. I had no vision. I didn't know where it was on a map. <laughs> I'd no. But there was a train there. The there was a train. Apparently from Liverpool, yeah. there was, yeah. <laughs> and it stopped at Euston. Yeah. 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 You, you're, you're from London, aren't you? I'm right? from London through and through, yeah. Yeah, so it's weird. So it's weird, yeah. I mean, I've... For us, because we're sort of brought up here. But but um... but you know when you you know, you know travel around any country, you you do realise that the, the, the capital always has this completely some, inflated some... view of itself and of importance. And, and... 
<laughs> Moving swiftly on. <laughs> so so um, not many people may know who um, Anton Edelman is. He's an extraordinary man and he doesn't get any plaudits, does he really, considering how many chefs he's brought on over the years? There's lots of Anton Edelmans in the world. He's a great writer as well, isn't he? Mm, he's writer. a great man. Um, but he's, he's, he did his job. He did his time. He was a major chef de cuisine of one of the biggest hotels in the world. Um, he wore his whites with pride. He had a window that overlooked the kitchen. He had a desk where he'd entertain guests at, in the kitchen. So he was like the captain of a ship. And back in those days, they were serious chefs. Yeah. And the, the, the hotel chefs in the 70s and 80s were the chefs to work for. But underneath them, there was these new group of restaurants starting to grow. And these are the ones that were becoming the standout, the Raymond Blanc at the Manoir, the Nicola Dennis, the Albo Rue, the Michel Rue. You're in, you're in the Savoy. Um, if anybody's ever been to the Savoy, you know, you go down the Strand, it has its own little tiny street, yeah. which is the only street, isn't it, where you drive on the right? No, drive on the left and not on the right. No, drive on the right, go the wrong way around. That's it, that's it, yeah. that's the one. Uh, you've got a doorman there, you know, and, and it's very imposing. Um, and you didn't even know about London, let alone the Savoy, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. No. What on earth went through your mind when you turned up? My <laughs> mum and dad came with me on a train. Um, my starting day at the Savoy was the 4th of July, 1988. Um, I remember it for that, for the reason. And you were 18. And I was 18 and just, just turned 18. I remember having my 18th birthday celebration in a Chinese restaurant on Lord Street in Southport. And a few days, I was at the 29th of June. And then that weekend I was on a train with my parents coming to London and my mum and dad got me into a hostel. Um, (laughs) and they, we, I I remember we went through the front door, my mum and dad sort of wanted to see what it looked like and I remember sitting in the lobby and my brother came along as well and so there was the four of us we sat in the lobby and we were supposed to have afternoon tea and um, but neither my dad or my brother or I had a tie so we, we were we were refused entry wow and so we sat in the lobby just staring at each other and looking at the hotel and just watching the world go by and then there became probably what I considered to be the scariest moment of my life it was when my mum my dad and my brother got in a taxi and went back to Euston station to catch the train to Liverpool and left me standing outside the Savoy waving goodbye to them um if I could have run after that taxi and got in it <laughs> it's a good job you didn't I, I would have done um yeah. I was absolutely petrified but then I had to make my way to the club the PM boys club the, the hostel and the next day uh, the Monday morning the 4th of July um my first day at work I walked into the careers office, uh, to the to the um, HR area. There was about six chefs started on the very same day. We were all marched off to Anton's office. We all lined up in his office in our brand I'm new... frightened already. Brand, <laughs> in, our brand new, in our brand new whites <laughs> with our brand new knives and our brand new everything. We'd been to the cloakroom to get our whites given to us because they provided them. It's almost like being in the army. Yeah. <laughs> and he marched, he called a sous chef in and he marched each individual cook off to a, to a completely different section. And I was the last chef standing in his in his office and he marched me off to the coldfish section of which I spent six months in that section butchering and cutting fish up. Banqueting up to thousands, 12 private dining rooms, wow. a la carte restaurants, 24-hour room service, fish, there was more fish butchered than there was meat, shellfish, longestines, oysters, mooses, terrines, f- uh, salmon filleting, fi- uh, turbot filleting, brill filleting, you name it, any fish filleting. Great experience, though. It, was, it wasn't. Was it not? No, I mean, in terms of your career. No, it was, it, was, no. it was what, it, yes and no. Yes and, yes and no for me, because I was... In a, in a position that I wasn't qualified to be, but I had a work ethic that was slightly different to everyone else around me. Mm. And that's what made me stand out. So I either sink 
or I swim. And I, I decided to swim. And I went through six months of what I felt at the time was probably the six of the toughest months of my life, but I got through it. But I could fill it fishing with my eyes closed, and I still can. I think that's what I was saying about great experience. You, know, you can't in buy terms it. Of, you cannot yeah. buy it. You have to experience it, and you have to go out there and do that. Yeah. And then I moved around the kitchen uh, to two other sections, and then I had a, 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 a sort of a eureka moment of what to do next. Um, it was quite unusual, actually. Eon Roney was holding a cooking competition back in the days, and in the kitchen at the Savoy, the competition was held. And in that competition, Michel Roussinia from the Waterside Inn was part of the teams, and there was lots of different teams. And every chef in the kitchen, we were allocated to a certain group of chefs for this competition. Um, the chef that was allocated to the Rue Brothers or the, the Waterside Inn was offered a job, and he refused it. He wanted to work in hotels. He decided he didn't want to work in a three-star Michelin. <laughs> And I and I Who thought is that, person? <laughs> that was a French chef, and I thought, well, that could have been me, and I didn't get the opportunity. I went home that night and I told my dad this story. He said, "Do you want to work with the Rue Brothers?" He said, "I said, I said, yeah, they they are the best in the world, Dad. Gavroche, three star Michelin, Waterside." He said, "Well, you're living in London. What are you doing tomorrow?" I said, "Well, actually, I'm off tomorrow." He said, well, "Why don't you just go and knock on the door? Why don't you go and go and knock on the door, Gavroche, and ask them for a job?" I said, "Can't do that, Dad." We had the conversation. And me and my dad, we can natter like a couple of old men. And at the end of this hour, hour and a half, um, my dad said, right, listen, he said, listen, lad, I've got to go. It's, it was past midnight, and it always was because he was at the warehouse. And he said, I want you to do one thing for me, and I don't want you to say no, and I don't want you to think about the question or the answer. He said, I'd like you to get up tomorrow. I'd like you to shave, put your best outfit on, and I'd like you to go knock on the door of Gavroche and please ask them for a job. He said, will you just do that for me? Not for, just do it for me. You can't really say no. You don't to say dad no to my for him. You it's don't not... say no for dad. Mm. And, he, and, he, and he worded it in a way that he, he was my rock. Without him, I would never have stayed in London. Uh, and I did it. And I knocked on the door. And I had that chat. Two weeks later, there's a letter in the post with a job offer in the greatest restaurant in London, because my dad told me to go and do it. A month later, I was in that kitchen with with um, wow. Michelle Rujuna, working with the elite. And that's where I met Gordon Ramsay. So can you just explain what Le Gavroche? meant at the time i mean it was almost head and shoulders above everything else i mean now there's there's a lot of competition in london yeah. with it was distinctly yeah. different yeah. in terms of its reputation wasn't it if you wanted to eat great food you either went to a five-star hotel you went to buckingham palace or you went to <laughs> the Gavroche. Not buckingham palace, yeah. <laughs> Gavroche. royalty ate great food mm. in the history in past um if you where all great food and bunk banquets and buffets were made were always in pain the past mm. was in was in mm. the royal households Across Europe, across, across Europe, and that's how we saw good fine foods in five star hotels. Albert and Michel started a, a, a revolution of fine food in, in in beautiful restaurants, and there was two. There was the Waterside Inn, his brother, and then there was Albert here in London. And it was, how can you say, going to work at Gavroche in the eighties was like joining the Beatles. Yeah, you were you were working next to icons. And people who had trained more chefs than you can than you can than you can imagine. And was it a familiar? You know, because obviously you go back to your growing up. You know, you grew up in a in a world where it was a family business, a proper family business, right? You all pulled weight together. Mm. What was the atmosphere like there in the eighties? In Gavroche, yeah, mm. cold. Um, really? What in the kitchen? Yeah. Oh, focus, cold focus. Really? Your head down. Twenty two, twenty three chefs. Um, no talking, a lot of French talk, um, and you were working in a three-star Michelin, so you're working with the elite. Just really concentrating Head on down. your... And you knew at 12 section. o'clock there was going to be a ticket, and you knew that that restaurant was full every lunch and every single dinner, Monday to Friday. 
And that for me was the most daunting thing. Again, I keep having more daunting things. <laughs> the reason being is that again, at that age, at the age of 1920, 20, I think I was, um, I think I was 19, 19. I walked my first day, Michelle Jr. met me at the door, took me downstairs to the kitchen, got changed. He walked me to the vegetable section to a young French chef called Nicola. And I remember his name because he didn't speak a word of English. And Michel said, Marcus, you've got one week to learn this section. Oh, and by the way, Nicola doesn't speak English. I was like, I'm not How was your French? Not, it doesn't speak French. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh God, not again. I'm back in the shoes I was in at the Savoy. Yeah. But no one told me at the Savoy what was going to happen. It just happened. Michel said, you've got one week to master a section in a three-star Michelin. Oh, and by the way, the veg section was right next to the hot plate where he worked. So it's like sitting next to the headmaster of your school doing your, doing your exam. Doing your algebra. Oh, I, I found that hard. And I the only way I could survive was I had to be in before everybody. I was always one of the first chefs in the kitchen, which used to drive Albert crazy because he used to stay at Park Street next door and come down early morning to have a coffee and he'd see me, maybe one of the chef there at six o'clock in the morning. We were just scared stiff. We just needed to, we needed, we needed to get our work done and the pile of work was so big. We didn't have the ability to be able to understand about working in, in in the right process you you were sort of working at volume rather than the yeah. quality of the mm. work and eventually you caught up eventually you got smart at you it you got smart yeah. at it yeah and that's how you start to train yourself I'm, I'm fascinated because you seem so driven really and obviously this has got nothing to do with money because it's it's no. it's you know that's not that industry really but who wants to go home so... as a failure though i don't know who wants to go home and say i, f- I want to come home who, 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 but do you ha- think that's to do with your dad that you wanted to prove that? Well, my dad, my dad was always at the end of the phone. would be a success. No, no, there was never come to London to be successful. There was never to come to London to open a restaurant. So what was in your head? Was it just one a, job at a time? One it, job at a time. So you just look one that job far at a time. ahead and just like I want to be. Do not look beyond what's important. I want to be great at this. No, and no, no. I just want to be a cook who's training, who is working with good people and working with the best. And there was never an ambition when I got on the train. There was never, ever a, a, a long-term plan. Um, it was one thing at a time, but be the very best in the group of people you're in. But did you, I mean, in a way, it felt like you were sort of um, quite an individual when you were at school and all that because you were doing different things from the other kids. Do you think it was that like you just loved being part of that team and wanted to make sure that you were no. a, a good member of that team? No, no I was an individual. You still... <laughs> I was a boxer because I didn't want to play team sports at school. Um, I didn't want to rely on people's other people's weaknesses or failures that brought me down. And so by being that single-minded person and selfish, I couldn't give a shit about the rest of the people in my kitchen. I only cared about the job I was doing. Even though I was a link in the chain of that kitchen, it wasn't my job to make sure that chain went round. I wasn't. That was Michelle or someone else's role. Yeah. My job was to do my job. And that was the key. Stop looking over there. Stop looking over there. Concentrate. Start focus, focus on yeah. what you're doing. And don't stop worrying about what everyone else is doing. But I'm not, not sure I'd want to but, work with Marcus no, when but, he was but, that but age. Not, but you're not. But what's interesting in some ways, you know, because we've got the benefit of looking all the way forward to where we are now. Yeah. yeah. But you are someone who just keeps going on this journey of like finding another new thing. Yeah. To, you know, we're not going to get into you holding geese and things. We'll get on to that a bit later. But you know, it feels like you have this burning desire to just keep learning and keep finding out new things and trying to crack them and trying to solve them. I never, I never had a um, much of a. And education and, and and I I feel that if in reflection I feel that I was let down by a system 
uh, I feel that I was um, never really picked up. And I think there's thousands and thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, young people now in the position that I was in. And I think there was, there was thousands of people that are in it right now. Um, so the fear of failure for me is what continues driving forward. But what I'm inspired by are working with brilliant people. Mm. Mm. And so working in kitchens, I work with brilliant people. TV, I didn't go looking for television. It, it came to me. I didn't go looking for cookbooks. That came to me. Mm. There's lots of things that I've done have just come to me. And I've, I've gone out, you know, I don't want 20 restaurants. I don't want to sit in an office. Um, I want to work with brilliant people. Um, and by working with brilliant people, you actually learn and pick up other people's experience. You know, for someone like myself who looked under every post-it note and couldn't delegate or even manage not a great deal, I got success by being driving um, driving, and and having people around me that would, were prepared to put up with the way I did things. And so maybe that's why I became a stage small in my industry and not big. It depends. Success is defined in many different ways, in my opinion. And I think we're all scared of what people say or think about us. And I have, I have an element of, I have a filing cabinet I sometimes I feel in my head and the things that I'm not really interested in or the things that I'm not interested in reading or the, just goes to the back uh, and it sits at the back and eventually it'll just drop away and you keep, you keep the positivity at the forefront and moving forward. And I, I often, I know people get trolled on social media and people get upset and, and I don't get it. That how, why would you read bad things about yourself or what criti people are cri criticising you for? Why would you read about yourself full stop? I never read <laughs> what food critics ever wrote about me, mm. ever. ever. It just brings you down. I just, yeah. And, and yeah. from people who don't know anything about it, in my and, and personal I, opinion. And I, and I was brought down <coughs> by food critics because I, on a, in an interview once, I actually said I couldn't care less about them. I think they're poison and so on. And this was years ago. And then every single one of them had it in for me. Mm. You'll never find an amazing review on me unless you go right back to the very beginning where it was this new kid on the block who was partnered up with Gordon Ramsay and winning accolades. Like it was just, I went to one uh, um, uh, award ceremony one day and I walked out with four gongs. I was like, I can't even remember what they were. Restaurant of the year, chef of the year, menu of the year and all these awards. And I just put them on the shelf and went back to work. They were just they were just trophies. They they don't define you at all. It's it's looking back at the end of it and saying, have I done everything I wanted to do and more? Have I been a role model for my three children? And have I and have I delivered everything that I ever wanted to achieve in life? Where have I failed and where have I succeeded? I've failed in areas. But I think if you are successful, you will be sniped at. And and again, certainly, we've both had that, haven't we? And and. You know, recently some things have, you know, sold my business and all this sort of stuff and, 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 you know, did really well. And it's at that point, my daughter, who's now in her 30s, she said, Mum, you won. <laughs> now, I didn't actually look at it like that, but what she's saying is, oh, all those people who say you can't do it, blah, blah, blah. at the end of the day, I mean, we're going to go through some of the other things that, that you've done, Marcus. Um, you can't do these things unless you're very, very, very good at what you do. It doesn't matter what a critic likes, frankly. It People's no, it you're absolutely right. It just doesn't. People often say to me, you're incredibly talented. And I'm just like, well, I didn't leave Southport talented. I'm not a naturally gifted person, I don't think. I just have a work ethic that beats most people's. And I worked very, very hard at my industry and worked the very, very best. That is all I did. I think if anyone's around and say that you're a gifted cook, is absolutely delusional by, by that sentence because that's not true. 
that's not true. I see. I probably disagree with you there. Mm. There are, mm, but there are, there. there are some <laughs> chefs, are there not, who have? I mean, God, there's no the, way you could have done that this, this stuff you, without being really. Good you at have what to have do. certain talents to yeah. be able to do certain things. Disagree. You don't think so? You, you think, just think no. it's about. Do you, know, do you know? Do you know? From the age of uh, seventeen, eighteen, I came to London and I became a head chef at the age of twenty-five. I won my first Michelin star at twenty-five. I'm now fifty-three. Do the maths. I've been at the forefront of the kitchen since the age of twenty-five. And on that, that's that's almost for a biggest majority of that, they were sixteen, seventeen hour days, mm -hmm. six days a week. People can't keep that. People don't do that anymore. No, Kitchens no. are not like that now. That's twenty plus years of solitary confinement. That's my wife how she got through that. <laughs> I've got more admiration for her sometimes. <laughs> do you know what did you know how we get through it? I was a well, chef. Well, you're not being there. I was a chef. I was a chef before I was a husband, and I was yeah. a chef before I was a dad. Yeah. And there was one thing I asked: never ask me to be anything different. Yeah. Absolutely. And don't ask yeah. me to come home at night because I'm not coming home. Yeah. So she grew up, and we lived. We grew up together, understanding yeah. each other's worlds, yeah. and that was the most important thing. So, so, um, so at the age of 25, you've got your first Michelin star. You're head chef at was it Lauranger? Yeah. Yeah. And. The most important thing for me about that period is you gave Angela Hartnett her first job, and we love Angela. <laughs> <laughs> like, did you spot talent in her? Although you say that, that there isn't such a thing as talent. Alan was, uh, Angela was very, very different. Angela had been to university. She got a, a, a history degree. Very smart lady. Mm. <clears throat> um, but in those days, she was just this dizzy young woman who used to come on a, on a bicycle with a basket on the front and you just think really honestly what are you doing and in fact you know she she knocked on the door of the aubergine um where i happened to be the sous chef and that's where we first met she then once she'd left there came to work for me and she worked in two of my kitchens loranger and petrus uh and she was very much a, a massive rock in my kitchen um and i you know i gave her a hard time gordon certainly gave her a hard time um, she just used to laugh at us half the time. She yeah. found it tough. Yeah, but she she had, she you know she found it tough, and she probably say she would say that. But that those days where where we were we were forming our careers and we were forming who we were, and the very important days as well. But that Angela Hartner is a cook with a very very serious approach to life and a very serious brain in, a, in, in mm. on her shoulder in her, in her head and a very very wise head on her shoulders. And um, I think she's a breath of fresh air. For, for women and for, for, for people in hospitality. Mm -hmm. I think she's an absolute legend and a leader and doesn't get enough recognition in that, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Yeah. So, so um, uh, you, you were at Petrus and I think it's 1999. You quickly gained a Michelin star, but then, of course, you had two Michelin stars. Mm. Um, uh, did you then do some more stuff with the Ritz? I always think it's funny how your life sort of goes full circle Savoy. a bit. Uh, sorry, I meant the Savoy. Yeah. Is, isn't it funny how your life goes full circle? Quite, quite strange. Did you want to do it was, Did it you was... want to go back and help or do something? No, was no. That... It was um, uh, Gordon and I were... <clears throat> Gordon had just moved into, uh, opened his second restaurant in Claridge's and it was such a success. Mm. Um, the company that owned Claridge's owned the Savoy, the Connaught, the Barclay... Um, and Savoy Connaught Barclay and Claridge's, yeah, all four, four of them. And so there was this opportunity for us to move into various different outlets. So Angela took over the Connaught. Gordon uh, was running Claridge's. He then launched me over into the Barclay. He then opened Box with Cafe in the Barclay. And then the Savoy Grill, which was the dinosaur of the lot, yeah. um, was like, we, we, there was a consultancy opportunity on the table. And I remember sitting in a breakfast with Gordon and, and Chris, and, and it was like, what... You know, they wanted to do a consultancy. This is what we should do. It's this grill room. We don't really want to uh, overdo it. And Gordon's like, no, 
we're doing the whole thing. We're not doing it at all. We're taking over the grill room. We're not going to be doing it on a part-time basis. And he put my name at the front of it. Uh, and we did it. And we won a Michelin star there. And we took a restaurant that was pretty much mm. dead in the water, but yet had a ton of history. The history is amazing. The history. Yeah. In history in all Incredible. those hotels. But the restaurants were, were empty. Yeah. Mm. The world had moved into outside world. The Gavroches were taking over. The Marcos. The, so this Conran was coming onto the scene. You know, Terence Conran was this new wave of restauranting. And that's mm. where hotel, di- hotel restaurants became... They were like dinosaurs. Oh, right. They were dying away. Yeah. When Gordon went into Claridge's, I remember going there and um, blown away. It was a long, 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 long time ago because it was something that just I hadn't had before. It was amazing. It was. A, I thought it was an honour for me to go back there. Yeah, it was an honour for me to go. I never worked in the grill room. I only ever worked in the main part of the hotel. So I remember the grill room very clearly because it sat right on the other side of the hotel. So it was very separate from the rest of it. Um, but what a journey that was. Was there anybody still left there that you, you, you sort of... What, when I moved in? Yeah. <clears throat> front of house. Oh, wow. Always the front of house. Uh, Angela Maresca, the restaurant director, he knew everyone, he knew where everyone sat. He didn't like the change, but the change was happening because the hotel owners were an American company mm-hmm. uh, and they, they had a different vision. Uh, and he, he helped us get up and running and for six months he was our maitre d', um, showed us how the place worked. Um, and I remember being in an interview and I remember saying that we're going to rip down the neck curtains because they stink <laughs> and we're going to get rid of the trolleys. And, it, and, and someone wrote about it and it put the, the, the Savoy Grill on the map. And it yeah. was just by throwaway comments, yeah. a journalist would write it up and it would be on the cover of the Evening Standard. Now, the cover of the Evening Standard was a very, very serious yeah, newspaper yeah. in London in those Faye days. Faye Mashler on the old yeah. Evening Standard. And, well, and everyone read it. I mean, everyone yeah, read it. Everyone, yeah. everyone read it. You know, it was what yeah. you... It you was the people, people weren't sitting on their phones in the tube. They, no. It was on the way you home. You sat there and yeah. you read through it and yeah. that's where you got all your information. Yeah, it was. Mm, excellent. So, I think it was about that time when, when uh, there was a documentary series being filmed. And it feels like this just probably happened to you by accident. Is that is that true, Boiling Point? That was Gordon's show, that was. Yeah, and, and, and I, you were I, in it. I were in it, yeah, that's yeah. right. As an exposure the first time to TV, what was your what was your thoughts? I didn't notice it. They were there and they I just was doing my job. There. Yeah, they, that was, we, If you stick a camera in a kitchen in those days, you film whatever you see. Mm-hmm. No one performed. We just did our thing and they captured some magic, of which in today's world wouldn't be seen as magic. They'd be mm. seen as not quite right. <laughs> Probably. You'd be, be cancelled yeah. whether you liked it or not. Yeah, yeah TV's <laughs> um, changed. Yeah. But but you did obviously go uh, more and more into television. The Great British Menu, I, I've done some work with, with um, Simon Rimmer, and, and he's obviously very famous in the northwest of England in particular. Um, and, and, and him and you in, in 2006 uh, were in the Great British That's Menu. Right, yeah. That's right. We competed, that's right. Did you, I can't imagine you accepting it and just going, or was that another thing we go, I don't know how to do this, and it's a challenge, I'm going to I'm going to go for it. Gordon, asked, Gordon threw me into it. Um, <clears throat> this new TV show, BBC, people cut the, that was back in the days when the nation would vote uh, over the that's telephone. That's right, yeah. Um, and it was the very first show, the very first series. Uh, the very first series you were in? Yeah, very well. And it's still going? Yeah, yeah. very first one. Still going? Yeah, and the prize was to cook for the Queen uh, on her 80th birthday, and I won the dessert, the custard tart. Which absolutely blew Prudy's socks off. So Lost you had a, a dessert of egg custard tart, which was, by the way, my dad's favourite, with Garibaldi biscuits. That's right, yeah. Custard and tea. Tea and custard. Tea and custard. The idea behind it was that it was uh, you cooked from the region of where you were from. Mm. So I did Lancashire hot pot, custard tarts. Custard tarts in the northwest are a very little, small, individual thing. 
pastry case custard, nutmeg. The idea was to create, recreate it as a large tart <clears throat> and have it set like a big wedge, but retain that wobble. Well, that wobble is very <laughs> difficult to retain when it's yeah. not in the, when it's in a little. It's easy to retain in a small pastry case because it's little and it's bite size. When you make it big and you cut it into a wedge, it becomes slightly different. Mm. It took me ages to master that recipe. And once I got the, the levels of the cream, the double cream, the whipping cream, the eggs, the egg yolks, right, the sugar, well, once you've got that, it's never changed ever since. The recipe that's in my books is the recipe that I cooked for the queen. Wow. There's no need to change it. It works. It works. Where, where it doesn't work is when people think they can adapt and adjust and to change. And it, it, you can do whatever you want with it. But at the end of the day, it's pastry, custard, nutmeg. Three key things. But yet it's one of the hardest desserts to make because it's got to be perfect in every single aspect. You can, there's no room for error. So did you think the <clears> queen actually ate it? She did. I asked her. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 at the end of her, her birthday, there was a celebration in a place in London. There's 600 guests. Uh, 400 plus in the one room and the rest in the other and I remember that we were the only line out that she said hello to and she obviously her 80th birthday she had lots of events to go to and uh, we the four chefs it was um, the four, so the, 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 the starter chef the fish chef the main course and then myself I think Richard Corrigan Bryn Williams and Nick Nan. <clears throat> we were the four chefs and uh, I was the last one and you knew she was on her way because the minute the queen stood up the room clapped her out so this clapping started and it went on and on and on. And you're thinking, is she ever going to get here? And the longer it goes on, the more nervous you are. And then you feel her presence in the room and you're like, that's the queen. How on earth did I get here? And then she shook the chef's hands and she had a little word with each and every one of them. As she was coming down the line, and I was the last one. I'll never forget it. There was this bank of photographers and film people on one side me and the other chefs and the queen walking her way down i've never felt so nervous and so scared in all my life she stood in front of me and she was quite petite even at 80 and it's just thinking to myself this is the queen of england and she's thanking me for what i've just done wow never forget it yeah and i i don't know I, people ask me what did i say and i think i did ask her did she enjoy her pudding of which she replied of course <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 move, and, move, and moved on. Can you come and make it again? <laughs> yeah. But it was one of those moments like, my goodness me. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, we need to talk about your new new mm. series. Just before we do that, obviously you've been on MasterChef, The Professionals, a little while. Now, now there's, there's something about that that makes me laugh a bit because the previous presenter was Michelle Roux Jr. <laughs> so given your background, that's very interesting from, from, from your chef background. But um, the reason why he became a judge is because I think he got sacked because he was doing a potato advert. See, right. our new potatoes yeah. were going to come back in. Yeah. Albert, Albert Bartlett. Oh, lovely <laughs> link. Well yeah. done. Ta-da. Yeah. Albert, um, Albert Bartlett potatoes, aren't they? That's the one he's the favourite. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and how, is, how ironic is that? Yeah. Oh, no. I'm potato merchant. Exactly. Potato on a TV merchant, show for a chef to get sacked by spuds. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I've never looked at it like oh, that know, before. I think it's fab. I think it's absolutely fantastic. The potatoes were on your side. Potatoes, you see? New potatoes would win out in the end. Now, that's very different from appearing, you know, on Great British Menu as a contestant. I know you were judge on there occasionally. Well, did you find that daunting? I mean, that's, you know, you've got Monica, so she's scary for a start. I um, remember reading um, in the caterer, <clears throat> and it was online caterer back then. It was very early days of online caterer. So I've been doing MasterChef, just filmed my ninth series. And I remember reading the article of Michelle losing his job and that, Ma and that Shine Television are looking for a new judge. And I looked at it and I read it and I laughed at it and I thought, every chef and cook in the world is going to apply for that. And I laughed at it and I thought, that never in a million years am I even going to be considered for anything mm. like that. And I deleted the email. I, I deleted it and I thought, 
that's just a piece of news that's yesterday gone. Yeah. <clears throat> and that was that. Didn't think anything of it. Off we went, carried on with doing my job. And then some weeks later, I got a telephone call by the producer, Karen. And she Karen. said, yeah. she said to me, she called mm-hmm. me and she said, Marcus, um, any chance we could maybe pop by and just maybe talk a few, about a few bits and pieces, <laughs> bits and things? I said, well, actually, I'm just about to relaunch my new restaurant. And in a, less than a few days, you will not be able to get to speak to me for, for, for about six months. And I cleared my diary because I was opening Marcus Wren at the Barclay. Uh, and I relaunched it and I'd invested a load of money into it. And I thought... I have to be at the front. Right. Yeah. And I said, if you want to talk to me, you come now. She said, What, right now? I said, Yeah, you need to come right now. Because <laughs> I'm I'm I'm, yeah. I'm I was in the weeds of this. And her and David Ambler came along. And I'll never forget David because he was a tall guy. Uh, and he's now running the show now. Came in, she said, Can we talk somewhere privately? And went to the corner of the restaurant. She said, Look, look, I, I don't really know. I'm not going to go around the houses of this. I really don't know how to say this to you. She said, but um, I'm just going to come clean out. Will you replace Michelle Rue on Master Professionals? Did of... you expect that? No, <laughs> no. I, I don't ever been a guest judge popped in and out. And she never really said what she was coming for. And and that article in the caterer completely slipped my mind. And I, I didn't even think why she was coming to see me. Um, and it, 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 I didn't put two and two together, of which I went cold. My face went white. I just went silent. Inside, it was... Marcus Waring, you've just won the lottery. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was dancing inside. I'd got probably what I considered to be the best TV, mm. the best job on television in cookery. And if you'd ever have asked me what was the ultimate job in television, it was always to do what Michel Rue had done because he'd done such an amazing mm. job with it. He laid the foundation of that show yeah. for me, luckily enough to be able to come and and to take over. He, he Where it worked for me, where I didn't think I was sort of the right person was that I was aggressive, I swore, I never smiled, and I was too the opposite of what television was. You're quite scary. Karen saw something slightly different, and she gave me two things I had to do. There's no auditions, there's no script to write. She said two things, there's two rules, you, you, you have got to follow. I said, go on. Number one, smile. And number two, no swearing. The rest is down to you. You can manage that. No, that was a struggle. And do you know what he taught me? To be able to talk about food with a smile, without swearing. And all I ever do to chefs at that particular point was shout and swear at them and never smile at them. And so I came back from the studio as the years went by, a different person as to the way in which I spoke to people and the way in which I spoke to my chefs. And so that taught me a new lesson about how to communicate. And that is another point of my life. And that was only nine years ago. Mm. And so you're never Mm. perfect and you're never the finished article. And so for me, it helped me become a better manager in my own kitchen where I could look at the kitchen and look at the chefs in front of me and speak to them with a sense of respect rather than suppressing them and pushing them and pushing them back. And that helped me a lot become a better communicator. Hmm. You don't hear that often about people saying that that, that type of role would, would actually, you know, help form your, you know, your, your professional life back, you know, in, an, yeah, in another the, world. The but it's just interesting to television. take. Yeah, you yeah. learn from it. It's interesting. And that goes back to my point about working with brilliant people. Yeah. So you did this um, Marcus Waring's Tales from a Kitchen Garden, mm. which was on BBC Two uh, last year. Um, I really quite enjoyed that. We were talking about it before mm. we, we came on air, weren't we? It's actually quite good fun. You're turning into somebody that's... Quite good fun and smiling a lot. It's it's the place that actually people often say to you to me, 
I get I get put into a category in a box because of the white jacket that I wear. But that's not that's not necessarily what I am or who I am. And you you yes, I am a chef, but I am also human, and I, I I do have fun, and I do smile, and I do everything that everyone else does. I eat the same food everyone else does. Um, but then this 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 there's this sort of sanctuary, this go to place that I go to that I bought six seven years ago, that is where when I arrive at the gates, I drop London off my back, and I get the opportunity to relax and to enjoy space, and never really appreciating the supplier and the producers in my world because I never was ever interested in them. And I didn't have social media and I never left my kitchen. So mm. how would I know about growing or farming, even though I'm from that sort of background? Yeah. But did you have <clears throat> contacts? So when you go back to your time of being in restaurants daily, you knew some of the suppliers who were bringing things to the table, where the meats came from, that kind of stuff. But you're saying you didn't have no, I know, tactile I, understanding of, of... I know if I was getting my fish, I was getting it from that supplier, my yeah. shellfish from that supplier, my beef from that supplier. I didn't care where it came from. Mm. I wasn't interested. Mm. I was only interested in the quality of what was in front of me at the back door of a kitchen. And so if the quality was exactly what I wanted... Then you are happy. Then I was happy. Mm. And it's up to the producer to bring that to me. I don't need to understand or worry about what the producer's doing. It yeah. didn't, wasn't my interest. It's, and it's, I think that's what distracts chefs so much these days. You focus on what's delivered to you. and You've made that choice to get to, to use that supplier. And so the world's moved on. And chefs need to look with a broader view. I never had that. Mm. But this TV show gave me the opportunity to do something I'd never done in my life before, which was grow and understand producers and go and meet them and get this. It, for me, I think it's actually completed the circle yeah. of who I am as a chef. And I've learned so much by meeting these people and they've enjoyed their company. And I appreciate the world of farming and growing. The, because the passion it's as fascinating. well. Fascinating. I mean, I think one of the things that really struck me watching some of the, the, <clears throat> the new episodes is that you just look so relaxed mm. and, and yeah. happy. There's a bounce in your step. And like you got time. You just, you, you know, yeah. you can't watch it and go, God, that looks like a lot of fun. Do, do you know my favourite bit, actually, is when you're, you're, you're in your... I wouldn't call it a garden because no, it's, it's not. It's not a garden. It's huge, <laughs> but 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 it could be in somebody's garden. And you you've picked this rhubarb, mm. and you're cutting it up, and you're putting it in these jars, and you are just mm. you're literally in heaven, and you can tell that yeah. that you just and it's not difficult. It's just but, you can just see the sort of happiness leaching. But out I also somehow. love the fact that you can still tell you're a chef. The way you, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. There's a moment where yeah. you cut off <laughs> the, the top of the rhubarb, and yeah. I'm like. I've lost three fingers at that yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, there's, there are these little flourishes where you, you see the chef in the garden. Yeah. And, and do you know what? It's not contrived. There's, no. there's too much of this stuff where you go and see, mm. and somebody's not a great presenter, actually. And, and, and you can tell it's a script and whatever. And you just, you're just looking at you and you go, you're loving this. You're do you know, loving do you know, do you know why that is that like that? <clears throat> because I have, I, I'm honest enough to say that I am not an expert in food. I am an expert and a master of my own creations, mm. but I'm nowhere near a complete article when it comes to food or global food or farming and growing. You have to be honest. You have to say that on camera. And I think there's too many chefs in the world and there's too many chefs that are on television that don't necessarily, who, who make us believe that they are brilliant at every aspect of things that they do. And I don't agree. And I am slightly controversial on the way I, the way I, 
when I say these sort of things because I'm going to challenge my industry and I'm going to challenge myself and challenge farming and growing and I want to get under the skin of where food and hospitality is going and I want to do it through the TV screen. Hmm. So the smile on my face is a legitimate smile because hmm. I am learning as I'm going along and that is the key. I'd but never cooked on fire in my life until I cooked on that TV show. So how, how, at the end of the day, I've never, I, I was rubbish at barbecues. You know, who does barbecuing? I'm, I'm a fine oh. dining chef. Oh, big, yeah. So, so how can I create? My job was to challenge myself, take the 30 years experience plus, and use that to cook on flame outdoors. And so that's what carries me through. Mm. You can't do that unless you've got the experience to back it up. But don't you think that's what appeals to somebody who's watching? Because they know that you're you're going to ask the questions that they would ask. Mm. You're not going to ask technical, you know, chefy questions. And I think that really... I think that really comes through in in the first series, and, and, and another really important question for me is what's happening to the ducks? <laughs> they have been like those ducks. I feel like I've got standing ducks now, no. ducks that get shipped in when the others have been eaten. The, the original ducks were Peking duck. Now I thought a Peking duck was a dish on a menu in a Chinese restaurant. I didn't realise that that's there is a duck called Peking duck. Yeah. This duck doesn't they even look extraordinary, and they don't even. They, but they've never been anywhere near water. They can't swim. Yeah. I mean, they're huge and they're plump and they, they're they they just sitting ducks waiting literally. to be eaten and they literally were. <laughs> we, put, we brought some new ones in. They had chicks. All the chicks got got culled and no, got, got eaten. And it's this been this journey. So the idea on the new series is that we bring we bring ideas in to prevent them being, you know, part of Mother Nature's cycle, which is very much what life is all about yeah. anyway. Uh, and we bring in the guard geese, of which look intimidating, <laughs> but they're pretty useless, bloody hell. Are they? They frighten me. Geese they look they are. frightening. I, so I did enjoy one of the things that I, I was watching your, your trip to Nep, which is a place I'm a massive fan of, in terms of what they're doing there. And, you know, your, your journey into talking to the tomato growers. I thought was amazing They're because amazing, I, I look back to, I remember Is this the hating, coming series? Yes. The one we're, we're dying I, to watch. I have to say, I am, um, I, when I think about tomatoes from the 1980s, it, I just filled with horror because most of the time they were just red things that were mm. full of water and were disgusting. Mm. And I really enjoyed the way you kind of really were sort of journeying into a whole new literally world of tomatoes, which I think often yeah. is hidden from you us. You haven't tasted my tomatoes from my Are they God. really good? You've never brought them oh, in. Just... We, to be honest, everybody just eats them oh, like like, like sweets yeah. because they're beautiful. Yeah. You can't help yourself. So I'm watering them, and you're just you can't Eat help them. eating them. Mm. Yeah, terrible. And they've yeah. not been in the fridge. Never. They've been looked after. Never. And they taste the good because you've grown them. Of course. Of course. And of course. so that's what that's what that's what growing is all about. There's a couple of things I've done. One of the, you know, one of the things I've really taken on board or taken from this series is allowing things to be natural. I'm a chef of precision, and I want my garden to be precise. I want my growing to be in lines. It looks perfect. Yeah, and it, well, <laughs> mine it, doesn't. It isn't. It isn't. It isn't. And I think <laughs> I, I learnt a lot about rewilding and the importance of allowing nature, Mother Nature, mm -hmm. nature, to express itself under a level of control. So it's you, us, we, the people, working in harmony with Mother Nature and with the animals and so on, and allowing it in. So allowing wildlife into your pond. We, we spent our whole lives, or we have at the farm, locking the deer out, locking the rabbits out, locking the badgers out. And the certain elements of that is true. Once I went to the NEP and learnt about rewilding and the, the importance of it, I remember waking up one morning and there was a break in one of the fences and there was three deer literally just walking through my garden. And I was mesmerised by them. Mm. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. 
of which it drove my gardener insane. I said, do not put the fence back up. But they'll do this, but they'll do that, but they'll do this. And eventually we ended up with pigs. We ended up with we'll work around mm, it. sheep. Mm. Let them be. And I, was, I had to try and explain to Anatoly, this is about me learning and about understanding why they are wandering in. They want some food. Mm. They have found a haven where there are lettuces growing, there are cabbages. Let them have some of it. But, 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 no. And this is where I've started to bring the barriers down on perfectionism in gardening and growing and understand. And that's why I've, 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 I've enjoyed it because it's allowed me to express myself in food in a way that I've never done before because mm. people expect me to be the perfectionist in whites, which is what I love to do. But outside, why can't it be something else? Yeah, it's interesting mm. um, juxtaposition of the two. Now, incredibly, we've only got four or five minutes left. Um, so I'm going to end on potatoes. So I'm growing potatoes, obviously, because right. I love my potatoes. And it's great. So I've got grandchildren. They live in London. They come and then they, they dig and look for potatoes like <laughs> their treasure, which is one of my, fa- my favourite things. I've been trouble with my potatoes this year. Why? I know your, your show was sh- short last year. Just it was just been raining so much. I mean, really raining, and and they're great, <clears throat> but all all of the all of the plant things, the, the shoots, no, the stuff green that's, things, <laughs> the stuff that goes above the ground. This is recorded in London, <laughs> we should say. <laughs> um, that is all just completely gone far too early. Um, but the potatoes still taste great. In your new series, of which there are twenty mm. uh, episodes, you have one on. You have an episode on potatoes. Don't we you? do. And it, is that in homage to your dad? I think it was. It was understanding that I've never knew. I never knew how a potato grew, and being the son of a fruit potato merchant, I've been to many farms to pick them up, but they were already picked and mm. in bags, mm. and never really grew, grew anything or grow. I'd never grown any of them, uh, and so I went to to meet a farmer and to understand about them and how they how they survive, what makes them work, the importance of letting them flower, letting it die back, cutting it back, but underneath the ground there is this treasure. Because one thing I've learned about farming is the key to success is the best compost. Composting, that is your food. That's the fuel. If if your potatoes aren't working, you've got to read around the subject. But the most important thing about growing is failure. You have to have failure to know how to, to change things and to move forward. And so whereas in kitchens, there's no such thing as failure. In, in farming but you can design it out in a way can't yeah, you but you can but, but on, the weather and all sorts of things impact you and you can't design it's, that out it's out of your hands <clears throat> it's out of your hands but at the end of a day of a kitchen it closes down the lights go off and the shop's shut in farming and growing it's 24 7 mm. 3 6 5 days a year and there is no respite there is no holiday there is no days off it is it is relentless and that's why I, that's why I tip my hat to that community and give them a huge amount of respect and I think differently about something that I've taken for granted for so many years mm. while I've wore a chef's jacket and so the the, the point of the TV show tales is to to share that experience and to share my appreciation for the the humble producer mm. and the supplier I had a great visit to um <clears throat> dairy farmer they make fantastic cheese just with their own own milk but they've got 100 cows i mean every morning mm. you can't like oh it's christmas day i'll no. we'll have a lion no, no chance you twice just, a day yeah twice I mean, a day it's, it's you know and we all just sit there and quite happy but eating the it, cheese and don't really it is interesting else. that thing about failure because actually i do think people are scared of failure mm. and it is it's something that's really difficult to deal with often but actually it's fundamentally built into the process of growing. Yeah, the number of things that yeah. I've tried to grow and have been a total disaster, and you have to come back, and yeah. if you want to grow that thing, you've got to try and I mean, problem corn, solve. And I, I know. on the cob this year. I've got so much of it, I don't know what to do. Oh, great. Well, lovely. I know, I know that I'm not <coughs> retiring any minute, and I'm doing more. 
um, and I've got a, a concept of tales that I'm I'm about to go into film for for another season, and I think I think from for, from my point of view, the the show and what I, what we are doing is about understanding how things work, and I can't, I don't want to slow down, uh, and the whole idea was that I am slowing down in this TV show, but actually through the second series I'm actually speeding up and I'm learning more and meeting more so the first series that went out last year was about me discovery this year I'm going out and discovering and I've got some information under my belt mm. that I can go out there and challenge the supplier bring that supply chain back to my garden plant it cook it and cook new things but just enjoy my cookery relaxed and having fun in the sun best thing ever and, 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 the, and the three kids and, and Jane are, are enjoying you doing that series. They are. They love. It. And I bet they love it. Yeah. They've dipped in and out of this one a little yeah. bit, and they've, they've sort of been hidden in the background. I never wanted a family to be in a TV show. You know, I'm, I'm sort of quite private like that. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't buy that house to make a TV show. We didn't buy that farm. We bought it because we wanted to be wanted to be closer to our children because they went to school down there. Uh, and so it was sort of a bit of a stopgap in between. I just didn't realise that my wife was going to find something that had 70 acres of land with it. Is that you what know, it is, 70 acres? Knowing full well I'd end up buying it. But on the land, I mean, I've got a farmer with his cows and his sheep on. I've got a kitchen garden full of produce and, and tomatoes. I've got an orchard with loads of different apples, plum trees and apple trees and pear trees. Beehives, we've got natural honey. Where's it all going? You, I mean, you, you... It, well, it, it, originally we were you were using it all in the restaurant, right? So it was creating stories through my restaurant, and I didn't know that when I bought the place. It yeah. just evolved. Into, Is it still going into the yeah. restaurant? Yeah. And so, but for the show, we were growing it for for my learning and for the community and yeah. to, to for, um, communal fridges and things like that. So it's got a sort of dual aspect life, and also looking at what other growers are doing as well. So where this year, for instance, where. I'm going to be filming somewhere different when I start my new filming. Um, I can close parts of the kitchen down and there's no need to grow a glut of food that then just goes in a compost. Mm -hmm. You know, So it's interesting. You can control and speed up what you want to do by, by various different methods. It's so seductive. Yeah. You won't be able to get out of it. But I do just... know I will be back in the garden one day full time, but that'll be it's when my chef's jacket is officially yeah. hanging up yeah. on its own, gathering dust. But that's not... Just That's not yet. You'll be pottering no, around. No Grey-haired. We're all grey now. You're all grey-haired. Well, actually, you're not. I'm not. We well, are. Mark We are. I am carefully <laughs> coloured as to not to be grey. Um, totally so you've natural. been listening it's to the... It's totally natural. What, like your curly hair? So you've been listening to the Food Talk Show, um, and as you know, we're syndicated to radio stations across the UK and further afield, as well as being available on all the usual uh, podcast apps on your phone. Thank you to my fellow presenter, Ollie Lloyd. You're welcome. It's good, isn't Great it, being back. back together again? Yeah. Um, and, of course, the fabulous, uh, marvellous Marcus Waring. Thank you so much for joining us, Marcus. It's, it's been amazing. Pleasure. Don't forget, uh, Marcus's uh, new series, Marcus Waring's Tales from a Kitchen Garden, is on BBC Two, starting on Monday the 28th of August at 6.30. We're going to be tuning in. We've had a, a little dip in. It's excellent. There's 20 episodes, would you believe? So that's uh, every night, I think, for yep. uh, for four weeks. That's right, yeah. Yeah, perfect uh, summer viewing. And you'll be able to get it any time on BBC iPlayer 2. And that's what I'm going to be doing. Um, so thank you again to Marcus. Um, and don't forget, if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts going back all the way to 2017, go to foodtalk.co.uk. Have a good week. Bye-bye.